Over the past number of weeks or months, there have been a series of different talks and teachings on the practices of compassion, patience, um, working with the inner states that arise in meditation or in one's life. And tonight, if I may, like to speak um, a little bit about Buddhist tradition and some of the wrestling with it that is uh, happening as it moves from Asia and from the East to a new culture. I'll start with a story that's hopefully related eventually to it, um, (laughs) but not exactly so in the beginning. It's a story uh, about a nun named Helen Rosala who taught in St. Mary's Elementary School in Minnesota. Um, And uh, as a teacher, she said she really um, was very devoted to her students. And teaching third grade, one particular young man named uh, Mark was uh, one of her favorite students, a kind of happy-go-lucky, sometimes mischievous, but really delightful child except for one problem, he always talked. He just talked incessantly. She would remind him again and again to be quiet and not to talk, and so, you know, to follow what they were doing and not to speak so much. And each time she reminded him, he said, "Uh, thank you for correcting me, sister, (laughs) as a third grader, Um, which was sort of strange, but she kept doing it, and he kept saying that. She said, but one morning, this was, she was still a pretty new teacher. Her patience became kind of thin, and she made the mistake of a new teacher, sort of a threat. She said, listen, because he started talking again in the middle of the lesson, if I hear one more word from you, I'm going to tape your mouth shut with masking tape, which she later regretted. And of course, 10 seconds later, he said something to some other child, and the child said, teacher, Mark is talking. You, you said you were going to tape his mouth shut, and they were all waiting to see if she would do it. <laughs> So she said she walked to the back of the room with the tape and put a piece across his mouth and as she walked away and turned around feeling very bad about doing it, that she'd really made a mistake, he looked up up at her and he couldn't smile with the tape, but he winked at her. (laughs) And the whole class started to laugh and she turned around and she walked back, took the tape off and he looked at her and said, thank you for correcting me, sister. But anyway, school went on. And um, he completed the year relatively well. And then she transferred to junior high. And lo and behold, five years later, this young man should be in her class again. She said now he was a very handsome young, you know, beginning teenager. Um, Except that he continued to talk a little bit much, but that was all right. And as they went along, because she had had him before, there was some connection. She said one day... Um, things didn't feel right in the class. We were all working in new concepts in math, a whole new area, and the students were getting frustrated. Even Mark was seeming irritable and edgy. Um, So I decided to stop all this crankiness before it got out of hand. And I had the students in the class list the names of everyone in the room, leaving two lines underneath each name. Take a couple of pages to do it. And then I told them to sit for the rest of the class and put their math aside and instead to think of the nicest thing they could say about each one of these classmates and write it down next to their name. And they took the rest of the period and it was turned into her. Um, And she said she took the papers home for that weekend and um, divided the papers up and listed at the top of each page a child's name and then copied out each of the comments, without the name of who said it, each of the comments that were said from everyone in the class about that child, two pages worth of the best and nicest thing that they could say about that other child. Um, And then she passed them out on Monday. And each student read down through the pages. And before long, the whole class was talking and excited and You know, really? I didn't know anyone thought that. You know, imagine they said that about me, you know. And that was kind of the end of it, except that the class was cheerful and ready to do math again for the week ahead. And then they graduated and 
Some years later, she said she returned home. She was traveling and her parents met her at the airport and said, oh, we read in the papers that one of your students, Mark, this boy, was uh, killed in Vietnam and the funeral's tomorrow. Um, and the parents called to see if you want to attend. So she said, I went and the church was packed with his friends and the pastor said the prayers and the bugler played taps and all of that. And one by one, those who loved him took a last walk by the coffin. And I was the last one to do the blessings. Um, and uh, after the funeral then, um, the parents came up to her. Um, they were waiting and they said, we have something to show you. And they took this old wallet that was Mark's from Vietnam out of his pocket, said they found this on him when he was killed. We thought you would recognize it. And opening it in the wallet were two worn pieces of notebook paper that had been folded many times and taped that had the list of all the good things that everyone in the class had said about him. And they looked at her and they said, thank you so much for, for being his teacher. And the other classmates from school who were there for the funeral gathered round, and uh, Chuck said sheepishly, I still have my list. It's in the top drawer of my desk at home. And John's wife said, well, John asked me to put his in our wedding album. And I have mine too, Marilyn said, it's in my diary. Then another one, Vicky, a classmate, reached in her pocketbook and took out her wallet, and there was this kind of frayed piece of paper. I carried this with me all the time. She said, I think we all saved our lists. So the teacher then just sat down with them all and wept and said, um, I wish that you could find someone every year who would tell you how beautiful you are. So that's the story to start with. And maybe to reflect about of what it means to be seen for a moment, even for a moment by someone else to have and that sense of what we're seeking to become and be and do and have, be acknowledged that maybe we're enough already, just as we are, just who we are. Now, how this will relate to the rest of the talk, we'll have to see. There was a meditation teacher who came for a visit through Spirit Rock recently, a teacher from uh, Thailand, Forest Monastery. And he said, well, it's interesting to see what you're doing here, but you don't have any monks. I said, no, that's right. And then he said, he was actually very open-minded and kind, but he raised a question. He said, can you really speak about death or freedom or detachment or nirvana, the highest teachings to lay people, you know, who are so busy wrestling with their own needs and money and cares and complications and desires. Those are the kind of teachings we tend to give only to monks in Asia. Does it work for lay people as well? And in this same last few weeks, I got a message from the editors of the Inquiring Mind, the Vipassana Insight Meditation newspaper, saying that the upcoming issue they want to do on whether Buddhism is life-affirming or life-denying. They, they sort of are beginning with a series of uh, texts or quotes. Um, here's, the, uh, here's one of the first quotes that they begin with, if I can find it. Um, <coughs> instead of teaching about beauty, it says in, in this particular text, Inconceivable is the beginning of these rounds of birth and death, samsara. Not to be discovered is the first beginnings of beings who, obstructed by ignorance or ensnared by craving, hurry and hasten through these rounds of birth. Thus have you long undergone suffering, undergone misfortune, filled the graveyards full, truly long enough to be dissatisfied with grasping at all the forms of existence long enough to turn away and free yourselves from them all. So this is one very powerful statement in the Buddhist teachings um, that says that um, if you live in a human body, in this human life, that there are entanglements and 
inevitable sufferings and loss and grief and sorrow that happens to all, and one should release it all, drop it all, let it all go to find freedom. But then there are other texts that speak about the beauty of this life. Um, even the patched robes of a monk, they have this kind of pattern of large squares and narrow rectangles that in the text say, one day the Buddha was sitting on top of a hill in the springtime in India and looked down at the luminous green of the, of the spring monsoon rice paddies and said, do you think we could sew our robes in the patterns that are so beautiful of those rice fields in front of us? Or Zen master Huang Po, who says, by Dharma, the teachings, the truth is meant simply the heart, for there is no other Dharma apart from the heart. And the heart is no other than the Dharma. The heart is the source, the pure Buddha nature that is inherent in all beings. Maybe that's what that teacher was getting people to write and see. All sentient beings, however mean and degraded, are not in this particular respect different from the Buddhas. They are all of one substance. And only because of our imagination and false discrimination do sentient beings work out karma and reap its result. While for the Buddha nature, there's nothing corresponding to it. The essence is peaceful and open and allows everything to pass through it, quiet, at rest, and blissful in its true nature. So there, there's those two different sides of the teachings from the East. This is from Zorba. Oh, I received my greatest lesson in aesthetics and life from an old man in an Athenian tavern. Night after night he sat at the same table, drinking his wine with precisely the same gestures. Finally I asked him why, and he said, Young man, first I look at the glass to please my eyes, and then I take it in my hand to please my hand. Then I bring it to my nose to please my nostrils, and I'm just about to bring it to my lips when a small voice in my ear says, how about me? So I tap my glass on the table to hear it ring before I drink, and thus I awaken all my senses. So there are these two different messages about spiritual life that you may have heard, whether it's in the Catholic Church, you know, in different sides, or in uh, certain Jewish teachings, um, Buddhist, Hindu, um, it's like this yoga teacher that I've mentioned who in the middle of one class teaching these new poses looked around at the students, some were struggling, some were kind of lounging about, and she said, hey, you strivers, relax, and you, uh, you sensualists, straighten up a little bit. So there are certain philosophical or cultural or linguistic questions that come in taking a practice from the East and bringing it into our culture. And each time Buddhist teachings have moved to a new land, uh, they have changed. In Tibet, they got mixed with the shamanistic elements of the Pon, the early uh, practices in the Himalayas. In China, they got... Um, mixed or combined with the Taoist teachings to create Chan Buddhism. In Japan, they were also mixed with some of the samurai qualities of that culture to make some of the elements of Zen. And if you look, Buddhist tradition, what one inherits if you receive it, is incredibly rich. Even the tradition of the elders that our teaching comes from has 80 volumes of Buddhist texts. There's hundreds more in the uh, that's in Pali, in the Chinese and Sanskrit, and 2,500 years of often contradictory tradition. You can go into a monastery, as I have in Burma or Thailand, and there'll be deba debates and even arguments among the masters about who's really enlightened and who isn't, you know. And it gets even worse than that, um, kind of very sectarian and at times rather narrow-minded. Um, the forest retreat teachers and the retreat center masters and the Abhidharma 
pe people don't even believe that the others teach the real teachings. They're sort of the low level. We have the right practice. You hear that a lot. Um, and some of the teachings, because there are thousands of practices, are about respect for beauty and virtue and uh, respect for all of life, holding it with a open heart so that the scent of one's good deeds, says the Buddha, travels like the fragrance of jasmine and sandalwood only beyond that in every direction, not just carried by the wind, but carried by the heart or consciousness itself. So there's this teachings of beauty. And then other places you get the teachings of the loathsomeness of the body, you know, or how feelings are really something that's dangerous or relationships or something that's, uh, that's dangerous. Um, it's a little bit like looking at the Bible, you know, because you can read the Bible, and if you're interested, you can have the Bible support teachings of revenge, right, and shame, and, and so forth. Or you can turn some other section and have teachings of love or wisdom. And the tradition is that huge and that rich. Now, by contrast to the literalist or the more narrow-minded way of teaching, um, some of our wisest elders in this tradition were very open-minded. Um, so Ajahn Chah, my teacher, said, teach the essence of freedom from grasping and call it whatever you like. <laughs> or Buddha Dasa, another forest master with whom I practiced, said, probably a third or more of the Buddhist texts aren't what the Buddha said anyway, and only the ones, forget all past and future lives and what's good and what's bad, only the ones that speak of uh, the openness or emptiness of all things, that they arise and pass away, and speak of finding that here and now in the present are the true teachings of the Buddha. The rest is all stuff that was added. It's here and now or it's never. Or the Dalai Lama who said, perhaps it's best just to teach kindness and emptiness. That's enough. Very, very simple. Now here's the dilemma, and we talk about it in the Teacher's Council at Spirit Rock and elsewhere, and there's a kind of irony in it. Because many of the monks and nuns in Burma and Thailand and elsewhere live lives of tremendous dedication and caring and beauty. I mean, you can find people who might even teach very life-denying teachings but they're walking along and they see a little worm going across the path in the monastery that might get stepped on and they'll stop and they'll pick the worm up and they'll put it down on the side of the path. So that there's no doubt that in the Buddhist tradition and practice um, there are large parts of it that are patriarchal and life-denying where the world is dangerous or filled with snares, a realm of suffering and torment um, uh, full of the possibility of entanglement, decay, and should be renounced and escaped. Um, and it's not just the tradition of the elders that teaches this, but um, even though you get lip service of the world being of some uh, different quality in the Vajrayana and Zen, the majority of their teachings as well, a great Vajrayana and Tibetan teachers, like Kalu Rinpoche, I heard him teaching about all the ways that you could go to hell if you did the wrong things and how moments of anger would, you know, undo all your years of spiritual practice and various Zen teachers where any kind of feeling at all was really a bad thing, you know, and just sit and don't move, basically. Um, and it's all empty anyway and release all beings from suffering and that's your only job here and then you're done. Something like that. So the question that that the teachers wrestle with in receiving this tradition is, are these the true teachings? Because you find them in the texts. Or are they simply skillful means for, um, especially from uh, the monastic renunciate tradition of ancient India? And it's certainly true that we can get entangled in the world, isn't it? And we have to recognize that. Um, you know, so when certain teachings call for celibacy, what does that mean? Um, that's primarily for renunciates and not lay people, but it's emphasized in these. Is sexuality bad, as some of these teachings would sort of indicate? 
or is it simply confusing? <laughs> and mysterious and entangling, you know? We certainly know it's confusing and mysterious and entangling, but it's also wondrous and intimate and potentially awakening. A story from Mullah Nasruddin about principles and truth. One day Mullah Nasruddin said to the uh, emperor um, that uh, all your laws are just um, tentative descriptions of life. There's nothing really valid in anything that you say. Now, of course, the king was rather insulted. He said, what do you mean? I can make a law or say this is true for this land, and I'm the king or the emperor, and that's how it will be. So he said, I would, he said I'll show you. Um, I'll make people observe a law. And so in this main city, um, there was a wide bridge that entered it. And on this bridge, he built a gallows. And the following day, when the gates were opened at dawn, the guards, the captain of the guard, stationed with a squad of troops there, an announcement was made. Everyone will be questioned, and if they tell the truth, they will be allowed to enter, but if they lie, they will be hanged. So, Nasruddin stepped forward first. Holy fool that he was. Where are you going, said the captain of the guards, with this emperor watching on. I am on way, way, said Nasruddin slowly to be hanged. <laughs> we don't believe you, said the guards. Very well, if I have told a lie, then you hang me. <laughs> but if we hang you for lying, we'll have made what you said come true. Ah, that's right, and now you know what the truth is. It is but a convenience in words. <laughs> For 25 years, the teachers in this community have been sorting this out, not so much with our heads, which is not such a good place to sort things out of this fashion, but more, I would say, sorting it out with our hearts. And it's not just our task, but the task of each individual in spirit, in spiritual life, to listen and sense what brings freedom to this being to our own heart, to our own life? What is it that allows us to be free in any circumstances? And what expression is suitable for us or for those around us, for our community? In teaching Buddhism or the, the Buddhist teachings that one hears at uh, insight meditation retreats and spirit rock, we have to figure out, we have to sort out what will we choose out of these thousands of possible practices. Will we emphasize the teaching story of where the Buddha abandons his wife and child? You know, and even after his enlightenment, when he returned, he called his son fetter or burden. I mean, is that the teachings that's really helpful for us at this time? <laughs> Or will we allow that the genuine path to liberation can include wise child-rearing as a mindful practice that leads to compassion and wakefulness? Will we adopt the view from one Buddhist text where it said that if women are included in the holy life, it will shorten the life of the community by centuries and cause its great decline? <laughs> Or will we choose another teaching in there where, which is a very deep respect for the feminine and for the earth and our interconnectedness in, through um, the, the mother, um, where on the night of the Buddha's enlightenment, um, he couldn't do it himself in the final moment when he was uh, struggling with Mara, the personification of evil, the Buddha had to touch the earth, which is this gesture in this Buddha image here, and ask the goddess of the earth herself to come and bear witness to all his years of patience and compassion and dedication that would allow him the right to sit on this throne or the seat of enlightenment. And the goddess of the earth came forth and supported the Buddha in his quest in that moment. So which of those teachings will we emphasize? And with it, as Eastern spirituality is imported, to the West, 
we have to clarify the language. We talk about attachment as the cause of suffering. But what about healthy attachment between parents and children, for example? Isn't there such? Which doesn't mean grasping, but nourishing and connecting. Or we talk about or read about the dangers of desire and passion and so forth. Um, but are there skillful desires to serve, to awaken, to fulfill a life of compassion? It's a complicated word. William Blake put it this way. He said, those who enter the gates of heaven are not beings who have no passions or who have curbed the passions, but those who have cultivated an understanding of them. Do we understand the power of craving that blinds us and entangles us so that we can't see clearly when we're always wanting something? But is it the world that's dangerous or only our craving and our fear of it? Now there's a wonderful Mahayana text that wrestles with these questions in a sort of playful way. Let's see if I can find it here. A certain goddess, who having heard the teachings of the Dharma and being delighted and pleased and overjoyed by the bodhisattvas and Buddhas who taught this, manifested herself in a material body and showered the whole assembly of great teachers and beings with flowers. And the heavenly flowers fell on all of the Buddhas and bodhisattvas and off onto the floor, but they fell on some of the old disciples. This is this is a sutra where the, where the newer Buddhists are sort of making fun of the old-style Buddhists. Okay? They fell on the old-style Buddhists, and even though they tried to shake them off, they would not leave their robes. And then the goddess said to Sariputra, who in this text is one of the old-style Buddhists, Why are you trying to shake off those flowers? And he replied, Goddess, these flowers are not suitable for a monk or religious person, so we're trying to shake them off. And the goddess said, do not say that, reverend sir. Why, these flowers are proper indeed. Such flowers have no thought of discrimination. That is no thought of what's good or bad. They're simply flowers. But the elder clearly has thoughts of discrimination of what's good and bad. This is a put down here. Now, Sariputra, impropriety for one who's renounced the world, uh, the Dharma consists of... Uh, uh, um, thinks that the Dharma consists of thoughts of discrimination. Such an elder should never be full of such thoughts. Um, don't you see how they don't stick to the bodies of the others? Um, this is because they have eliminated the thoughts of what is good and bad and right and wrong. They rest in a, in a deeper kind of freedom. In this same way, evil spirits have power over fearful, uh, fearful human beings, but do not disturb those are fearless. So then Sariputra asked, Goddess, then why is it that you appear in a female form? Could you not transform yourself to a male state if you're such a great teacher? Why don't you come as a Buddha? Mm, little dialogue going back and forth. And the Goddess said, although I have thought, sought the essence of this female state, for many years I have not yet found it. Reverend Monk, if a magician were to incarnate a woman by magic, would you ask her, what prevents you from transforming yourself from a female to a male state? And the monk said, I would not, for such a woman would not really be a woman, so there would be not, no need to transform. And the goddess said, just so, O monk. And thereupon she employed her magic power and caused this elder in his robes to turn into her form and caused herself to appear in his form. Then the goddess, transforming herself into Sariputra, said to Sariputra, looking now as the goddess, uh, Reverend, what prevents you from transforming yourself out of this state now? And Sariputra said, I no longer appear in the form of a body of a male. I am surprised. My body has changed. I do not know what to transform or who to be. And the goddess laughed. And she said, All women appear in the form of women, in just the same way as the elder appears in the form of women. 
While they are not women in essence, they appear for a time in the form of women and deserve respect in this form. With this in mind, the Buddha said in all things, they appear as they are and yet they cannot be separated as male or female. And then the goddess released Sariputra by magic power, each returning to their form. And she said, Reverend, what have you done with your female form? I neither made it, he said, nor could I change it. Just so, all things arise of their own nature and are neither made nor changed. And that is the essence of the teachings, to respect things as they are. To respect things as they are. So this is an old dialogue that goes way back, thousands of years, about what's beautiful and what's not, and what's good and what isn't. Underlying it is a practical question for us, which is the question of freedom. Each of us has to face the task in this life of looking to see what causes our bondage, our entanglement, our fears, our confusion not just in the little ways, but in the deepest ways, who we think we are. That skeleton that used to be up here on Monday nights, which was given when one of the forest monks Ajahn Jamnian visited, was there for the teachings of looking at this human body and remembering that inside, what's holding it up is the spine and the rib cage and the bones of the legs and the thighs, to see that we are not this body. Who are we really? So in the monasteries where I practiced, um, we had practices where we would sit in the charnel grounds or watch the bodies as they decayed. And sometimes they were called teachings of loathsomeness of the body. But sometimes they were simply ways of asking the question, who am I really? They can be used in a skillful way to bring a fearlessness. When you sit in the charnel grounds in the forest all night, there's a certain um, kind of difficulty that you have to go through initially <laughs> until you become uh, less afraid of bodies, of ghosts, of forests, of animals, of your own death. Um, but these are not necessarily the best teachings for everybody. They're not necessarily the best teachings for those men and those women who hate their bodies, are they? You know, sometimes Buddhism is taught, as one friend of mine who's a teacher said, as a kind of Stone Age psychology, you know, where what's good and what's evil is sort of laid out and you judge yourself. It's taught in ways, or it can be, that reinforce our unworthiness, that encourage our shame, that take people who already look in the mirror and say, no, I don't like what I see, and may have felt that way for years and years, and make it worse. So there are all these different teachings. One text where the Buddha speaks of this human body as a bag full of water and excrement. Okay, thank you. You know, <laughs> But then later on in the same text, the Buddha speaks of the peace of the heart, not of, of views or arrogance or by tradition, but free from all grasping and aversion, free from all fear, from all reaction. Just this wonderful presence. Whatever we choose, whatever teachings we choose, we have to use them ourselves and look into our own heart and say, is this bringing me to openness, to greater love and freedom and letting go? Or am I still caught? And where am I caught? Because it's not a question of philosophy or practice, but of direct experience. I had a talk with Ramdas uh, about a week and a half ago. Um, who's gradually getting better in his ability to speak, not so much in his ability to move, still in his wheelchair, and can't move one side of his body very much, and gropes a lot for words, talks slowly. Um, but a lot of his humor and perspective is still there. And so we were talking about things, and especially after his stroke, 
and I was asking him some about whether he experienced a different sense of freedom now going through all this or whether it was more difficult or whatever. And he laughed and he said, freedom, huh? What a question. And he said, I've been in my life a karma yogi. A karma yogi is someone who learns to serve the world and through that service is, is uh, through giving to others, that's the vehicle to find freedom. He said, that's been my path, to serve without ego, without being attached to the fruit of my action. He said, but you know what I've discovered is there's a lot of fool's gold on that path. It's very interesting. He said, it's easy to act and think you're helping other people and that I'm free and not be very free with it. And you really need to meditate. That's what brings freedom. That's what I found. And so... I looked at him and I said, you know, Ramdas, there's the same danger in meditation. I can see people, many people who meditate and use it to not deal with their fears and their problems and they fool themselves too. Just as one, there's fool's gold in meditation, plenty of it, just as there is in yeah, karma yoga in service. Ramdas thought for a minute and he said, yes, he, had, he talks very slowly, he said, I talk slowly now, so, kind of groping for words, people have to, and he laughed, meditate when I talk. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so he said, yes, yes, you can get caught in meditation, but now when you can't move your body, the service part doesn't help so much. <laughs> You really need to have learned how to meditate and how to let go. So in this dialogue that I'm presenting tonight, it's important not to deny the depths of suffering in the world, the confusion, the warfare, the greed, the loneliness in our own lives. If we deny it, we would sort of get some... Um, like somebody called it Buddhism light, you know, some, some sort of Western watered-down version of teachings. <laughs> mm. There's a little cartoon of Calvin and Hobbes that I saw yesterday, where Calvin and Hobbes are both going down this hill on a skateboard, and one is saying to the other, nothing is, imp nothing is permanent, everything changes. That is the one thing we know for sure in this world. And then it shows them going down the hill and hitting some other bumps. And finally the last, last little balloon and it says, that may be true, but I'm still going to gripe about it. <laughs> so, there are these different sides. We will die. It's certain. The only thing that's uncertain is quite when, what the moment is. There will be difficulty. We can get entangled. And yet, also, there is beauty and freedom that's possible in any moment to be seen, recognized, open to. And the path to this freedom is the fundamental path of awakening, the practice of awareness or mindfulness of this very body and senses of the heart and mind, the practice that we do to see it all, the pain, and the danger, and the beauty, and the preciousness of it, and the griping, you know, and all the complaining, to see all of that from this place of awareness and rest in the center of our being. This is the middle path, and it's not life-denying, and it's not life-affirming, it's not a philosophy or something that uh, rests on ideas. It's an invitation to an experience in any moment of freedom. The kind of wisdom that sees life as it is and says, yes, this is how it is. The truth liberates and not our efforts to be free. And this awareness has this truth-seeing and compassion as well. Because if we look deeply, we see that we are connected with it all. We cannot separate ourselves. 
As Joanna Macy said, how can I get off the wheel of birth and death? How can I think of getting off the wheel? I am the wheel. We are life awakening to itself. So this freedom of heart allows forgiveness, forbearance, sacrifice, love, letting go. Letting go usually is a sacrifice, isn't it? I mean, it's not like, just let go, is it? It often has blood on the floor, usually our own, <laughs> to be honest with it, with it. It does. So it's not a small thing. But this freedom of heart allows the possibility of forgiveness and sacrifice and openness. And then where do we do it, you know? Do we have to go into some forest monastery and face the tigers in the caves? That was the old kind of fashionable practice, or be renunciates? Or can we find those same opportunities in marriage or love relationship? You know, in caring for the earth in our community, in the difficulties we have in business or child rearing. Aren't they there also? Isn't there the teachings of entanglement and freedom to be found? Now, in Asia and India, there's a certain kind of mystical perspective that emphasizes yogic practices, where one transcends this world to a state of great silence and openness and coolness, like the dark of the night sky without any stars, of interstellar space kind of the, the fruitful void out of which things come, restful, rest, more restful than deep sleep. You know how wonderful it is? I mean, you say, well, I don't know if that's interesting, but if you could have a good night's sleep, would you like it? That deep, wonderful sleep. More than that, this wonderful, restful quality. But to emphasize it somehow can also take us off the path. For the middle path, is neither grasping nor rejecting. It's not going forward or backward or even standing still. The third Zen ancestor put it this way, the true way or the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When attachment and hatred are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to find the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. It's said that the Buddha, in his own life, spent the 45 years after enlightenment walking, eating, teaching in nirvana, which is in peace, awakened, happy, joyful. And the definition of that nirvana is the heart free of grasping, free of greed, jealousy, craving, delusion, and this is our birthright. It is our own true nature to be found by each of us. This allows us to enter the world and yet not be tainted or caught by it. Remember the story I told some months ago about Bo Lozov, my friend who teaches in the prisons for 20 years, the Prison Ashram Project. And when he first began to provide meditation teachings, and spiritual material for people in long-term imprisonment to use for their lives. Got lots and lots of letters back, how to meditate, how to do yoga, to make your prison time into a monastery. And he started visiting prisons and he went to South Carolina and this old black man came up and said, Bo, I've been waiting for you to come. You know, I got your your letters and I got your information and you are my teacher, man. I'm so happy to see you. And Bo looked at him and said, I'm not your teacher. 
I've just given you some of these materials to help you. He said, no man, I have your picture on the altar in my cell, you know, and I've been meditating and using what you sent and it's everything and it's so important to me that you're here. You know, and I just love, I'm so glad to see you. And Bo said, no, no, I'm not a teacher. I just, I'm just passing on the teachings of meditation and yoga best as I can. And he went home after that, Bo said. Thought about it and didn't sleep that night. Was very upset by that encounter. And by the end of the night's reflection, he realized he had done this man a grave disservice. Um, because it was so valuable and important for this man in his prison cell who he was corresponding with to think here is someone who will serve as my teacher, as my mentor in some way. And he said it so struck him that he stopped going to prisons for a year until he felt that he was ready to go in and have someone look at him and say, you are my teacher, and yes, say yes, that's all right, I am your teacher for now. So how is it that we too can enter the world and put on the robes or the role of parent or lover or teacher or student or whatever it happens to be for that time and yet not be entangled in it? It's not just about being good or kind. Those are parts of spiritual practice or being generous, sort of becoming a spiritual person. But there is really a freedom that is possible in any moment, that moment, this moment, in which we say yes to this moment as it is. We can enter it fully without resisting and without grasping. It is when we step out of the small sense of ourself, the body of fear, and remember that we are part of everything, something greater, something really amazing. I mean, what brought us into this life? And it's true, we can get entangled and need to learn to let go, but we also can get afraid of the world and need to learn how to open to it. And because it is fleeting, in some way, it is all the more precious. The deathless, as the texts say, here. Give an ear then, for that which is beyond birth and death can be found, set forth in these teachings, revealed to you, the supreme goal of the holy life, that which brings the release of the heart, the sake of which all go forth into, into the life of practice. If you practice in a wise way, if you listen and take this to heart, you too, in no time, in this very life, can make known to yourself, realize and discover this liberation of the Buddha in your own being. So when Ajahn Jamnian was here a month or two ago, he was talking about um, the purity of the heart when we are not caught in the entanglement of the world. How from the place of the eyes that see things as they are, everything is beautiful and holy. Even the aging of the body and the sickness or suffering or death are proclaiming the teachings of the Dharma, the law of nature, the way things are. So they too are our holy teachers. They teach us how life is. Can we love the mystery of what is? Like that teacher in the very first story tonight, can we see what's beautiful that shines in every single being? Can we let our own hearts open and sing in this life, bow to each and every part of it? This is to awaken our Buddha nature, to not be afraid. My teacher Gosananda from Cambodia he said, yes, life lives on life. We eat and are eaten. Isn't it true? He said, so this can either be a dog-eat-dog -dog world or we can feed one another. How will we choose to see it? I end with a passage from Dogen. 
He said, just understand that birth and death itself is nirvana, and you will neither hate one as being birth and death, nor cherish and grasp the other as nirvana. Only then can you be free. This present moment, this present birth and death, is the life of the Buddha. If you reject it, you thereby lose the life of Buddha. But if you grasp onto it, attaching to birth and death, you also lose the life of the Buddha. Do not try to measure it with your mind or speak it with philosophy. Simply release your clinging and rest yourself in the house of the Buddha. You become the Buddha. There is no obstacle. There's an easy way to become the Buddha, he said. Refrain from harming others. Do not cling to what arises and open your natural compassion to all beings. That's all. This is called Buddha. You don't have to go anywhere else. It is right here in front of you. So let's sit. So you who are striving, you might relax, and you sensualists sit up a little bit more. Find in the sitting a place of balance. It's not just the balance of the body, but it's the openness and balance of our being, of our heart. Let your breath rise and fall as it will naturally, and let thoughts and feelings come and go received with kindness and respect. Rest in your own Buddha nature. Now think of something that's difficult or conflictual in your life as you sit quietly. Think of it, reflect, remember. And as you bring it into your heart and mind, sense the two ways that you could approach it. One is from the small sense of self, the body of fear that has all the confusion and reactions. You know what that's like. (coughs) And then breathing gently, feel or sense, imagine what it would be like, what it is like to hold that difficulty or conflict from the place of great wisdom and compassion from the Buddha heart within you. How does it look like from that deepest wisdom where the Buddha laughs even at this? (coughs) After all, how long will it be here in the cosmic scheme of things? And what really matters?
Maybe just your love and your freedom in all of it. So let that go and come back again. So thank you for your attention tonight. Um, it was, as I said, a bit more of a Buddhist talk than usual, but a process for myself and really for a number of us as teachers to understand the movement of practice from one culture to another. A few brief announcements and then a chant before we leave. Um, Next, the next two Mondays I'll be away. Next Monday, Norman Fisher, who's one of the abbots of San Francisco Zen Center and a splendid teacher and wonderful friend, will be doing the Monday night sitting. And the following Monday, um, Sokni Rinpoche, who is a young Tibetan Lama and holder of the teachings of Dzogchen practice, so some of the highest of the Tibetan non-dual practices will do Monday night. And then I'll be back. Um, also, I got a note from someone asking if I could announce that uh, uh, Tommy Thompson, who is scheduled to be executed um, uh, next week, I guess it's San Quentin, um, but it's unclear to everyone whether he really committed murder or not, um, is scheduled to be executed and uh, request that those who can call the governor's office 455-1455, or fax the governor um, and ask him to uh, um, stop the execution. Um, first of all, just because it's a bad thing to kill people and not a very good example to other people that you want to stop killing people. Um, so fundamentally that. Um, added to it is the fact that it's not even very clear whether he is guilty. So that's something for you to reflect about. Um, there are also upcoming residential retreats with uh, Christopher Titmus and with the James Barras later in August for those who would like. So let's end by chanting the chant, the simple word namo, which means bow to or pay respects to. We'll chant it nine times. And you can pay respect in your heart as you chant it to whatever you wish, to your own life, to those you love, to um, those uh, beings in the world or in any realm that um, you wish to pay respect to, to the earth itself, um, to the sorrows that people must hold in this life, or to the beauty around you, all of those things. We'll chant and then just sit quietly for a moment. The word namo comes from the Sanskrit in Pali, um, and uh, it is in a, in a vocal way, a way of bowing. Namo.
May you rest in the awakened heart this week, neither grasping nor resisting life, neither afraid nor entangled in it, but in that place of knowing and compassion that is there within every being. Remember to take some quiet time to sit or walk in the woods to nurture that place. Thank you. Drive carefully and politely in the parking lot. <laughs>